So uh, last week we began in 2 Samuel 7, but only got halfway through the chapter. So we'll pick up this week and finish up, basically finish up uh, where we, uh, that sermon or that idea. As I said last week, uh, there's probably not any way to overemphasize the importance of 2 Samuel 7 in the history of salvation, in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. It is in 2 Samuel 7 that we learn for the first time that through the line of David will come a king who will sit on the throne forever. A king who will build a house for God. And in many ways, that promise, that uh, it refers in some senses to Solomon, who literally builds a house for God when he builds the temple. Uh, But as with many prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, what you have is sort of this mountain range uh, view of what God is doing. So sometimes if you're driving, like we don't live near awesome mountains. I mean, they're pretty awesome to us, but I mean, they're not like Rockies type. But even with our mountains here, the Blue Ridge, the Appalachian, the Appalachian, the Smokies, whatever you want to call them, uh, as we approach them, as you approach them, they just look like a beautiful landscape. You know, they all look like they're right next to each other. But then you realize, like, as you go up one mountain, you realize, oh, wait, that other mountain is way, it's much farther away which means it's a lot bigger because it looked like it was the same size as this mountain. And so that's what you get a lot with, with prophecies in the Old Testament. You get this, this mountain range where the prophet looks at it and he just speaks of what he sees, that mountain range. But as you get closer to it, you realize that part of what he was saying is further away, but really a lot bigger than he even described it. And so we see that even here in what God reveals to Nathan, who then tells to David that your son, a, a seed, a seed, an offspring from you will build my house. Yes, this is Solomon, but it's something bigger also, because Solomon doesn't sit on the throne forever, does he? In fact, not a single descendant of David sat on the throne forever, save one. Our Lord Jesus sits enthroned in the heavens as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the next time he comes, it will not be in humility. It will not be in a manger. It will not be incognito. He will come in the full glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So although we'll only be looking specifically at David's response to these promises We'll go ahead and read all of chapter 7 by way of introduction. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, 
Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken all also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, 
confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and from you, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So we'll be focusing mostly on David's reply. Uh, if you want to hear more about the first portion of, da- of God's uh, answer to Nathan and his uh, promises to David, I would encourage you to listen to that sermon from last week. But just uh, by way of review, uh, first God answers David who wants to build a house for God, a temple for God. He says, I've not asked for this. Uh, It's not that he's saying that what David wants is a negative thing, but he's pointing out uh, that God delights in being ever accessible to his people. He has lived in a tent on purpose Uh, Because for the most part, his people have been dwelling in tents ever since he delivered them from Egypt. And so God seeks to identify with his people. Uh, But God goes beyond just answering him and saying no, or answering him and saying, no, but your son can build a temple for me. That would have been a nice, simple, easy answer, and that would have been historically accurate. But God goes well beyond that. And he says to David, not only do I not need you to build me a house, You need me to build you a house. I am going to establish your house. I'm going to establish your throne forever. I am going, I promise that I will never abandon you or your household. And the result of that will be that I will always be with and for my people. He tells David first in a personal way that he will be with and for him. Then he explains to him that this isn't just for David. It has a national impact on all of God's people. It is a blessing to God's people that God makes these promises. He says, I will will establish uh, my covenant between you and your offspring, just as he told Abraham. And he promises David that death won't end God's commitment to David. He says, even when you are laid in the grave, I will keep my promise to you. He promises David that sin will not end his covenant. Even when your sons uh, sin, though I discipline them, I will not abandon them. I will, sin cannot end my promise to you. And time will not fade the promise. He says, this kingdom, your throne, will be established forever. It seems that there's more than just these words because the, the whole thing is wrapped up with uh, telling us that so 
Nathan then went and conveyed both the words that the Lord had spoken to him and the vision that the Lord had shown him. And so, uh, and we'll see from some of David's response that, that there's more than, than what we read here in what God conveyed to Nathan and what Nathan conveyed to David because it speaks of this vision, something that Nathan saw completely humbled David. And while we've seen in David and we ought to be experiencing in our own lives, times when God's promises cause us to jump and shout uh, unconcerned for what others might think of us. There are times that we, we see the amazing mercies and holiness and kindness of God, and we can't help but want to shout it from the rooftops. We see that in David. We see an example of that uh, after the crossing of the Red Sea, when, when Miriam leads all of Israel and singing this glorious song of the, the deliverance that God has worked out for them. But there are other times when we see face to face, we come face to face with the glory and holiness of God and His mercy and His compassion and His faithfulness. And our worship of him is very quiet because we are undone by his kindness. We are humbled. We are put in our place. We see it in Job. At the end of Job, Job, we're told Job puts his hands over his mouth and he says, I had heard of you, but now I've seen you and I repent in dust and ashes. And we see it here in David in his response to this great promise, King David went in and sat down before the Lord. Sometimes when we are confronted with the faithfulness of God, all we can do is just sit in awe of his kindness. He starts out, who am I, O Lord God? And hopefully you heard it because it's hard to miss, especially reading out loud. Eight times David repeats, O Lord God, O Yahweh Elohim, the personal covenantal promising God of creation. And then three more times similarly phrased, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. We can excuse David. David's, you know, he's the, the king poet of Israel. You'd expect him to have, you know, a better word flow. And he does later. He, there's a psalm based on this time. But here, David is, he's almost, he's baffled. He's, he's dumbstruck. He stumbles over his words because he just cannot fathom the kindness of God shown to him. And so we see in this passage, David is both amazed by God's grace and he is emboldened by God's promise. So first we see uh, that David is amazed by God's grace. First of all, in verse 18, who am I? What is my house that you have brought me this far? David acknowledges that he is where he is only because of God. Only because of God's work, only because of God's presence. 
Could David have had a different view of his life? Could David have looked back at his past life and said, my life has been awful? I think he could have. I think David could have looked at his life and had a completely different perspective. He could have looked back at his life and said, my first wife was taken from me and now she hates me. My father-in-law wanted me dead and used his entire military power to pursue me both across, inside, and outside of Israel. I had to move my parents to Moab just to keep them safe. I lived on the run for years. I had to pretend I was insane once just to keep from being imprisoned. I lived among God's enemies and was in constant danger of being found out. How do you view your life when you look back on it? David sitting here says, who am I that you have brought me thus far? David doesn't look at all the trials he's gone through and said, where have you been? He looks at all the trials he's been through and says, wow, God has been faithful. God has sustained me through all of this. I mean, I certainly didn't see it at the moment, but now looking back, I realize I'm, if I'm still alive and I am, yeah, I am still alive, it can only because God has been with me thus far. Do you look at your life and say, The Lord has been with me thus far. Verse 19, he says, But this is no small, this is like a, this is nothing in your eyes. It's not enough to you that you've sustained me this far. You've spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. That seems to be an understatement. Forever is definitely a great while to come. And this instruction is for mankind, O Lord God. David seems to be fully aware, even if he doesn't know all of the details of how it is going to impact the world, he seems to recognize that what God has said to him is going to have a worldwide impact. These things that you have told me are instruction for mankind. This is a promise not just to David, not just to David's house, not just to the house of Israel. This is a promise for all mankind. An everlasting king is going to sit on an everlasting throne. And an everlasting king sitting on an everlasting throne is worthy of far more than just a people from a nation the size of New Jersey. An everlasting king on an everlasting throne is worthy of a people from every nation, and tribe, and people, and language. Now again, does David understand that it is Jesus, that it's the Son of God? Perhaps not fully, but he understands that there is something more going on than for just David, and even than for just Israel. This is something that you are telling us that is for all of mankind. And David says, And what can I say in verses 21 and 22? What can I say? You know your servant. I skipped some of the stuff in David's life. 
David can also look back at his life and say, I once almost killed a man because he insulted me. Like we're talking Genesis, you know, Genesis 4, you know, that, that scene where just after Cain and Abel, we, we read of Lamech, seven generations from Adam, and he calls his wives together and he says, I just killed a young man for insulting me. David is on that path. He's so angered by the, the personal insult he's received from a man named Nabal, which means fool, strange, don't, you know, if there are names not to name your children kids, maybe not fool. Uh, but David is on the verge of killing this man. He is so angered, so full of vengeance and wrath. David can look at himself and say, what can I say? You know your servant, God. This is not because you found such a stellar person in me. You know I'm not worthy of this. You know that I'm a sinner. I am nothing, and yet you have called me and made me something. Because of your promise and according to your heart. Brothers and sisters, get this into your heads. God is committed to you, not because of your promise and your heart. God is committed to you because of his promise and his heart. If God were committed to you because of your commitment, he would have given up on you a long time ago. Our commitment even as Scripture says, lasts about as long as the dew on the grass in the morning. There is no telling what slight difficulty we can face and suddenly we're like, where is God? We can look at this and even steal from a little bit of David's future and say, David, you don't know the half of it. You have no idea the sin you are capable of. And isn't it odd to us to think, but God does. God, God doesn't just know what you're capable, capable of. God knows what you are going to do. And yet he chose you. Who am I? Who am I? You know your servant. God knows you and he has still chosen you. David says, you are great. There is, there is none like you. There's no God besides you. In verses 23 and 24, David realizes, you know, that this isn't just about David, though. This isn't just God making some personal private promises to David. This is God's amazing grace as he has shown to all of Israel. Israel exists purely because of God's grace. They exist only by God's mercy. The whole passage is focused on what God has done, but just consider these two verses, 23 and 24. Who is like your people? 
God, you went to redeem your people. You made yourself a name. You did great and awesome things. You redeemed your people from the nation and gods of Egypt. You established for yourself a people to be your people forever. You became their God. It is all about what God has done for Israel, never about what Israel could do for God. The covenantal promise, this threefold promise of the covenant, it can be boiled down to three things. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will be with you. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be with you. This is here in this passage, the covenant promise. You established for yourself your people to be your people forever, and, to become, and you became their God. Why? Because they were a wonderful people? Because he saw that they would always be faithful and obedient? No. In fact, if you consider Deuteronomy 7, so far back, even at, before God's people were even in the promised land, God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You know, I've talked about this in, in your dating relationships or in your marriage relationship. You know, we can talk about uh, things that we love about our significant other, but those aren't why we love our significant other. Like if, uh, if, if your wife says to you, why do you love me? You don't say, well, because you keep a pretty clean house. You don't say because you're such a good cook. You don't say, well, because you're so pretty. Listen, pork chops get burnt. Dust rings get missed. People get old. Not that old isn't beautiful. Old is very beautiful. I'm realizing that more and more every year. It's not why you love your spouse. And like the more you try to think about it and put it into words, you're like, why? Okay, well, that's, you're right. Those are all such superficial things. What, why do I love you? Why do I love you? These, this is an important question to ask. Do you know there's no higher answer than I love you because I love you? That's God's answer. I didn't choose you because you were some great nation. David, I didn't choose you because I knew what a wonderful, beautifully, always holy, perfect choices king you would be. I love you because I chose to love you. And if God chooses to love you based only on his heart and his promises, he won't change his mind. You'll not burn enough suppers. You won't ignore enough laundry. You won't grow out of your youth and vigor and beauty. God will 
always love you because he chose to love you. We should be with David in this. We should be amazed. It should just cause us to just want to sit and be amazed and humbled at God's goodness to us. But David isn't just amazed by God's grace. He's emboldened by God's promises. And so he begins to ask God for things. What does he ask in verse 25? Now, Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his household and do as you have spoken. What is David asking for here? Lord, oh, please do it. Do it. Do what you just said you were going to do. Please do that. Do exactly what you said concerning your servant, concerning my household. Oh, Father, give me generations of children who will follow you, who will love you, and who will return to you when you discipline them in their sin. Verse 26, God, your name will be magnified forever if you do this. People will say, the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you if you do it. Not for the sake of David's name. What is that? It's for the sake of God's name. Because you will have done it, people will be amazed. For you, verse 27, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has courage to pray this prayer. Why do we tell each other, why do we make verbal, why do we say out loud uh, things that we're committed to? Maybe a better way to approach that is to realize the opposite. Why do we not tell people about our goals or desires or things that we want to accomplish? I don't know about you. I don't tell people my goals and desires because I don't want anyone to hold me accountable. Like my wife and I are different in this. She likes the New Year's resolution things, and maybe you do too, and maybe you're like me, and you're like, ah, pacha, I'm going to fail in two weeks anyway. What's the point? Uh, but one thing is I've realized that, like, I don't, that's not the only reason I don't tell her just because I'm afraid of failure. It's actually because I'm afraid of her knowing the things I said I wanted to do, and then she'll be like, hey, how's it going on that? Well, I forgot I told you I wanted to do that, so now I'm a little upset that I mentioned it. We tell each other our commitments because we want people to hold us accountable to them. Like when God announces his promises, does he need to announce those promises to us? Aren't God's promises yea and amen whether he tells them to us or not? No, he tells us those promises because he invites us to hold him to it. David says, God, I am, I am encouraged, I am given courage to even pray because you have revealed these things to me. You've told me these things. Why would you tell me them if it wasn't for me to depend on these promises? How amazingly gracious of God to tell David his promises. God makes his vows and covenants public so that you and I can pray 
his promises back to him. David says in verses 28 and 29, Now, Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servants. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that you so that it may continue forever before you. For you, Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What a great prayer. You are God. Your words are true. You have promised good things to your servant. May it please you to bless the house of your servant because you have spoken. If you will bless this household, then I know my household will be blessed. Do you, are you emboldened by God's promises to you to simply pray those promises back to God? Now, you want to be, you want to be a student of Scripture, obviously, you don't want to be praying, like, what God promised to David here is not necessarily what he's promising you and me. I mean, he's not putting you or me on a throne or promising that we're going to have a, a son forever on the throne. Uh, but he, is made, he does make other promises to you and me, doesn't he? He does promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. He does promise that if you confess your sins, I will forgive you. He has made promises to you about your children after you. Do you come to God on your knees regularly, simply praying back to him the promises that he has made to you? Because if he has promised it to you, it's because he wants you to be encouraged by it. And he invites you to even remind him who needs no reminding of his promises Do we have the boldness to go to God and say, only if you bless my house will I consider my house blessed. Nothing else matters. If you will do it according to your word and according to your own heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are faithful. Your love indeed endures forever. We are humbled and amazed. Grant to us, God, the, the ability to just sit in your presence. Amazed by your grace. God, give us courage to pray your promises back to you, to claim your promises for ourselves, the promises that you have made to us. Lord God, you are near. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.